heaven. Uh, um, what we found out from Scripture is that we long for that because we were created in and for paradise. If we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see human beings in paradise made for paradise. But it doesn't last for long. By the time you get to Genesis 3, paradise is lost. And the reason it's lost is because human beings sin against God and the result is death. And so that's where we kind of left off last week was this bad news that sin and death has entered into uh, our paradise, but also that God had a plan for rescuing us from that and returning us to uh, paradise. Um, even though God reveals in Genesis 3 that He has a plan and makes a promise that it, it's going to happen, that an offspring is going to come who's going to crush the head of Satan and sin and all of its effects, you can still see as you start to read through Genesis this proliferation of sin. By chapter 4, you have Cain killing Abel in cold blood just because he's jealous. By the end of chapter 4, you have this guy named Lamech who is killing multiple people merely because he says they, quote, wounded him. By chapter 5, you have this long genealogy that most of us like to skip. Um, just, just be honest, right? You, you hear, see a gene genealogy, just like, oh, I don't want to read that. But in this one, it, it, it says the name of the person in the generation, and then it says, and he died. And then it says the next name, and it says, and he died. And the next, you will not find a, a genealogy like this anywhere else in the Bible. And it is definitely revealing that what God said in the garden, that if Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die, die. We talked about last week. And that is exactly what's happening. God's word to them is being fulfilled. Exactly what he said would happen, happens. Exactly what Satan says would happen is not happening. <laughs> Their eyes are not, you know, being, being opened and enlightened to good and them being made like God. Things get worse to a point in Genesis 6 where it's just utter depravity. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we've seen this from Genesis 4 to Genesis 5, Genesis 6, this spiral to this place where human beings are completely infected with sin, and it's leading to all these separations. We talked about how uh, when we talk about death in the Bible, we're talking about separation. So we see separations between the human and the self. We, we see shame and fear and guilt. We see uh, separation between human and human, things like polygamy, and then murder being the ultimate form of a separation between human and human. Uh, we see a separation between human and earth. We'll talk about that in a, a few minutes. And then humans and God. And this is really the, the root of their problem is uh, that they have... Uh, to steal a, a phrase from D.A. Carson, they've de-godded God. And so what God sees when he looks down at this, he sees their, quote, wickedness. And this Hebrew word that's translated wickedness is an interesting word because it both means evil but also misery all at the same time, which makes perfect sense because this is how these spirals happen, right? 
You're miserable, and so you respond to that by sinning, which makes you more miserable, which you respond to by sinning, which makes you more miserable. It's the addiction cycle, for instance, right? The addict takes the drug. Why? Because the addict is miserable, but then it makes the addict more miserable. They take more of the drug, and they spiral out of control. The infection has gone septic. It's not a localized infection that can be dealt with, with a topical uh, medicine. It has gone into the bloodstream, and now it's going from the bloodstream to the tissues, right? Sepsis is a spiritual sepsis. We read that every intention, ooh, not just actions and attitudes, but even the intentions of the thoughts of the heart, whenever the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the very center of the human being, the place where the will, the the emotions, your thoughts, all are springing from at that central place is this evil continually, right? Not a, not a, oh, I had two good days last week and then I had five bad days, but evil continually. And you say, well, how, how could this be? How could it be that bad? I mean, isn't the Bible going just over the top in this description of simple human beings? But what we don't understand is that what is supposed to be at the core of human existence is God himself. And when you de-God God, then everything else is tainted. And that's what we have here. It'd be like, let's say, a husband comes home and the wife says, hey, I made your favorite meal and I went on all those errands that you had to run. I ran those for you, except I'm still sleeping with another guy. That, that, that's what we're saying when we say, well, we did good things, but we're not placing God at the center. The relationship has been broken. Spiritual adultery has been committed. And how does this affect God? Well, he feels regret, grief. He's sorry that he made man. And it says that he felt those things to his heart, to his center. Now, we have to be careful when we start to see God expressing emotions because we immediately just ascribe everything that we've experienced emotionally to what God is experiencing emotionally. What we have here is what's called an anthropopathism. There's your $10 word. You can impress your friends at parties, all right? Anthropopathism. It's ascribing human emotions to God. Now, when we do that, we also know theologically that God is immutable. That means he does not change. We also know that he is impassable. Nothing from the outside of God can come in and change him. They kind of work together, this immutability and impassibility. So it's not like we experience emotions. When we experience emotions, something comes from out of nowhere, from outside in, and then we experience an emotion. And if God could be changed by some kind of outside force, he would no longer be God. There would either be an equal to him or someone superior to him who is now acting on him and changing him. Now, so he, he, he doesn't experience emotions just like we do, but he is experiencing emotions. But know that he is not reacting, he's acting. He's willing these emotions. These emotions are appropriate for what's going on on planet Earth in Genesis 6. And the proper emotions that he is experiencing regarding what's going on in Genesis 6 are then acted upon with his judgment. And his judgment is a flood that destroys every living thing on the planet. Now that's troubling. That's troubling. 
How could the right thing, the holy thing, the good thing, be to kill off every human being? Well, think about this. So created human beings, which are image bearers, refuse to live in accordance with their creator. They start to hurt others. They start to hurt themselves. They start to hurt the earth. They ultimately are offending God. They've become a glory absorber instead of a glory reflector. They become such a detriment to themselves and others to God. It leaves God with the only option to destroy them. This seems to be the case. Genesis 6.11 says the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, that word being translated "corrupt" can also be corrupt, uh, can be translated "ruined" or "destroyed." What it's describing is a human self-destruction. So they've experienced a self-destruction long before they experienced the ultimate destruction from God. When we see that, we 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 see a, a problem here in part because he said an offspring was going to come from Eve and was going to crush the head of Satan and sin and its effects. So it's like, God, did you decide that plan wasn't going to work and now you're going to kill everybody off? I mean, what, what's going on here? Well, he does preserve Noah. I don't know if you caught it in Genesis 6-8, after he describes all those horrific things that are describing human beings, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You're like, wait a minute, I thought the whole earth was corrupt. But this guy Noah found favor? How can I get on team Noah, right? That's one of the questions we're going to answer today. Okay, how do we get on team Noah? And what we find in this is that God makes a covenant with Noah that we're going to call the covenant of preservation. The covenant of preservation. He preserves Noah and his family through the judgment into this new earth that they then rule and reign over. And we're going to find similar things that we found in other covenants. We're going to find it's initiated by God. We're going to find that it results in human relationship. We're going to find that there are terms in the covenant. We're also going to find that there's a sign of the covenant. That's kind of a new piece there that most covenants have. They have signs. And so the questions we want to answer this morning is one is, how do I get on team Noah? (laughs) How is it that Noah finds favor and these other people don't? What, what are the terms of the covenant? That's the second thing. And then number three, how do I respond? So how is it that, that God gives favor to Noah? Now, I think you get an insight into this in Genesis 8. And this is right when he comes off of the ark. Uh, Genesis 8:20 says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That's an interesting first thing on the to-do list after you get off the ark. You've been on this ark four days. You've used up probably all or most of your food stores. You have no homes or shelters to live in. You've got a lot to do to get ready to be able to survive. And what's the first thing he does? He builds an altar. And he sacrifices animals that he's been preserving for days on the ark. Why? Because Noah knows he is a sinner. He's a sinner. And he is a sinner just like all those other folks that were destroyed in the judgment, were destroyed in the flood. 
And he knows if he is going to not only live through this flood, but live through ongoing worthiness of judgment, he's going to need a sacrifice. And so he makes a sacrifice for his sin. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. A man trusting in a substitutionary sacrifice. One gives their life so that he can live. It echoes from, from, from this point forward, even earlier. So last week we looked at Genesis 3 and we see that Adam and Eve are, are naked and, and ashamed. And what does God do? He offers a sacrifice. He kills animals, takes the skins and covers their shame, covers their nakedness. It, it was an echo that there's going to be a substitute in the place of sinners. And so uh, Noah knows that he is not preserved because he made a 4.0 in college. And he tried really, really hard to be a good little boy. He knows that's not it. And you will find out if you read some of the chapters later that he's not a good little boy. Right? One of the first things he does, he, he, uh, he plants a vineyard, he takes the grapes, makes wine, drinks the wine, gets totally drunk to the point that he's like naked, out of his mind. Right? This is our righteous Noah. He knows that it is by grace that he is going to, that he has been saved, that he's going to be continually saved. Because look at God's response to the sacrifice, right? This is how we know the sacrifice worked. Verse 21 of Genesis 8, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So we had God grieving earlier and feeling regret and, and being sorry. Now he's smelling. So this is an anthropomorphism, not a popathism, but an anthropomorphism. We're ascribing human characteristics, human actions to God. Sometimes we'll say the strong arm of the Lord, right? Does, does the Lord have an arm? No. Does he have strength? Yes. Okay. Does he have a nose that smells? No. <laughs> so it's similar to when we think about anthropopathisms. It's like, it's similar. It's not the same, but there's some similarities there that help us understand who God is. And so why is he smelling? Now, this contrasts with pagan religions of the day. In, in, in all the other pagan religions, there were sacrifices, animal sacrifices. But the reason they were sacrificing is because they believed that the gods and goddesses were hungry. And somehow if they sacrificed this animal, it would kind of transpose into the heavenlies and they would have a nice barbecue lunch. And then their bellies would be full and they'd be happy and they'd give them good things. And so they would appease the gods and goddesses with barbecue. I mean, it makes sense, right? But that's not how God rolls, right? He has no needs, he has no needs. He is self-existent. He exists by his own power. This is the uh, seity of God. You want some, it gives you lots of terms today. Let's just throw them at you. Right? He is self-existent. It's interesting, the Babylonian flood stories, and yes, there are many flood stories in the ancient world, which would indicate, I think, to us that there was a flood. And people are trying to figure it out. Like, why did it flood and what happened? And there's even some ark stuff out there. It's very, it's very interesting. But in Babylonian flood stories, the reason that the gods and goddesses stopped the flood is because they're hungry. 
and they need some people to offer sacrifices. So they're like, we got to knock this flood off so that these people can offer sacrifices and we can have some lunch. That is not the God of the Bible, the one true God. He has no needs. He is self-existent. He exists by his own power. So he's smelling instead of eating the sacrifice. Why is he smelling? He's smelling as, as, as a way to show that he is accepting the sacrifice for Noah's sin. He's, he's saying, I'm going to hold back deserved wrath, not only on you, Noah, and your family, but on all of humanity because of this sacrifice that's being offered. And he says, in his heart, so now God's saying something else in his heart. Earlier, he was grieving in his heart, saying he's sorry that he created human beings. And now in his heart, he's saying, I will never destroy. So from the very core of his being, I am never going to destroy by a flood. So now God's saying, I'm going to choose to give mercy to sinful humans such that I will preserve their existence by my grace. This is common grace, and it's extended to all of humanity. Just think about today. This is a beautiful fall day. It's gorgeous. Leaves are coming in. The temperature's perfect. It's sunny. And everyone gets to experience that. Not just Christians. Everyone. And that is common grace. And it comes from the hand of God, whether people acknowledge it or not. It's coming from the, 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 the grace of God. But again, notice that the, the catalyst for this grace is a blood sacrifice. It's a substitutionary atonement, a substitutionary death in the place of Noah and his family and humanity. Does this sound familiar? This is an echo of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his substitute, substitutionary death on the cross. Now, there are terms um, that are in this covenant. There's usually always terms in, in these different covenants. And these are to huma- humanity. There's, there's no like distinct like Israel, distinct people of God yet. These are, these are with humanity. And so Genesis 9, 1 and 2, we see the first round of terms. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps in the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, this should sound familiar to you if you've been with us back when we were looking at Genesis 1 and 2. It's saying, he's saying to Noah and his family, same thing he said to Adam and Eve, I want you to, to, to participate in procreation and productivity. Procreation and productivity. So he's wanting Noah, okay, now fill the earth again with image bearers. I want more image bearers, more people that are not absorbing my glory, but actually reflecting my glory back to myself. Uh, But then also stewarding the earth. Now, anytime that there's any kind of dominion language, that's not now exploit the earth, destroy the earth. Every kind of dominion language, when God's speaking of you have dominion over something, it's to cultivate it so that it brings forth even more fruitfulness. And so that mandate is given to Noah yet again, that the same mandate in, with Adam and Eve, which means that God is still into that. He still wants us to be cultivating the creation. This is part of the call on the Christian. And so when, when we're doing something to, 
to, to bring about the thriving of the creation, the thriving of human beings. We're bringing glory to God, and that is honorable stuff to do. This picture here is of Nick Duanus working on his master's project as an engineer. And it's a trailer. It's, it's like inside that trailer are all these chemicals and uh, test tubes and all, all kinds of equipment. And it's for the purpose of taking wastewater and purifying so that it can come out potable water. And he can take this anywhere. It's, it's, it's portable. It's awesome. That's, that's bringing glory to God. And it's also contributing to human thriving. And it's a participation in the covenant of creation that was given to Adam and Eve and then given to Noah and his family. And it, 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 it is important. So I know it, sometimes in the church, we, we're like, yeah, the real important work is like the pastors and the missionaries and those kind of people. And then, yeah, I'm going to count it. No, no, you, you're called to bring glory to God in your vocation. Now, yes, you're also called to participate in God's redemption right, by making disciples and make disciples. But you're also called, called to make uh, a better circuit or create a better teaching curriculum, or figure out how to clean water so that people can have clean water, right? This is all a part of, 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 of God's heart for the creation, for the environment. And he, he's laying that down, those terms down uh, with Noah in this covenant. Then a second round of terms here, Genesis 9, 5, and 6. Your lifeblood I will require, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning for every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the second round of terms is the respect for the sanctity or the sacredness of human life. That human beings, because they are image bearers, are in a different category than any other kind of life form. And they, because of that, God says they need to be protected. They ought not be murdered, which is what was happening pre-flood, is that people were just killing each other off. Here he's saying, fill the creation with image bearers, and image bearers are killing off image bearers. And what he does is set up the, the seeds of human government in this covenant, right? He's, he's not saying, if you kill somebody, then I will kill you. He's saying, if you kill somebody, human beings have permission to take the life of that murderer. And what this does is it restrains evil. That's what was not happening in the pre-flood world. There was no restraining of evil via government. Now, regardless of how you feel about the politics of, of, of the death penalty, and there's all kinds of facets to that and the cruelty of it, etc. But what I want you to draw from this is look at God standing for the sanctity of human beings. They're, they have a dignity and they have a worth and they are to be uh, protected. Um, it's biblical to do that. It's in line with the heart of God to do that. And I think overall, human beings agree with that. I, I don't see any Democrats or Republicans saying, you know those laws we have on the books that like, are against murder? Let's get rid of those laws. No, no one's saying that. Right? Everybody's on board. We, we need to protect people uh, from being 
murdered. But what, what I think we have in our culture oftentimes is an eroding of that. And, 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 and the, what usually erodes it is, is when we value people based on what they can bring about economically. And so what happens when we, when we argue for active euthanasia or we, we argue for abortion, oftentimes those arguments are they're, they're economic arguments. And, and we say, well, it's, it's, it's a bad thing for a poor mother to have a poor child and then look at what their economic future looks like. Look, look what will happen to the governmental structures if they have to take care of that poor mother and that poor child. Or look at the nonprofits and what they'll have to do to take care of those, those, those needs. And those are real issues. And those are things that need to be taken very, very seriously. And oftentimes, Christians don't do that. They'll give lip service to like a kind of a pro-life stance, but they're not willing to step in to, to the difficulty and the messiness of supporting uh, moms and babies uh, through whatever difficulty they go through. Um, what I do see a lot of in, in, in churches is uh, there's like a whole movement among uh, lots of Christians in America uh, to adopt. And this is par- partly what I'm talking about, like stepping in there and stepping up to, to do what it takes to take care uh, of babies and moms uh, who decide uh, when the mom decides to have the baby. Um, but this is the reason why Christians in general get pretty cranked up about abortion. It's because they believe abortion is killing an image bearer and that that is against the law of God. Right? And so you see that here in this, uh, this, this idea of an image bearer and not killing an image bearer in this covenant. This also includes a, a, a reverence for persons in general, not just don't kill people, right? But treat people with dignity and worth and respect. Uh, this is why racism is wrong. Because black image bearers, brown image bearers, white image bearers all have equal dignity and worth. Um, Almost any kind of system or culture discrimination has some kind of narrative that dehumanizes the person that they're discriminating against. We see that in apartheid, in Nazi Germany, in American slavery, the treatment of Native Americans in this country. All, all of those narratives include a dehumanization in the minds of the people that are discriminating against them. And what, what God does in his word is say, no, they're all equal in dignity and in worth. This is why nationalism is wrong. Saying that because, saying my country deserves better things than any other country, like, that absolutely cuts against this idea that all have dignity and worth. So that's the second round of terms, the sanctity of human beings. The third set of terms is that he desires to create a covenant community, a family in this covenant. He says, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So there, he said that twice already. God said to Noah and and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. 
I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. You see both threads of this covenant, both with creation. I mean, he's saying, I'm making a covenant with creation. I'm also making a covenant with human beings. He's like, I'm going to renew creation and I'm going to redeem human beings in this, wrapped up in this covenant. And so what you have is Noah, the family head who has saved his family, and now they're going to rule and reign in a new creation. That sound familiar? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. This one who has saved, right, his family, and now that family will rule and reign in a new earth. And one of the most powerful things about this is the way that God attaches a sign to this covenant, uh, which just screams grace. Genesis 9, 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. All right, so this covenant's for humanity going forward. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. What I bring, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. He just seems to say over and over and over again the same thing, same thing. He's like, this is the sign of my covenant, and it is a rainbow. And that rainbow is for the purpose of God remembering the covenant. Did you catch that? Not for Noah to remember the covenant, but for Noah to remember that God is going to remember. Because it is God who is preserving humanity by his grace. And so every time, I mean, just think about Noah and, and his sons. They're out working and, and, and the, you know, their families and they're looking up and they see some clouds and they think, is this it again? It starts raining really hard, and they're thinking, man, I wish we would have kept that ark in better shape, you know? <laughs> like, here comes judgment, and then a rainbow appears, and they go, no, no, there's no judgment. That's the gospel. <laughs> That's the bad news and the good news of the gospel right there, that, that yes, we're sinners and we're worthy of judgment, but no, God has, has chosen to save us. And it is by his grace. I mean, the sign is something that, that God does. Like, like, they can't like produce a rainbow, you know? It's like, all right, guys, we're going to make a rainbow today. Let's do it. It's God doing everything. And he's showing them his grace and his mercy. Oh, Palmer Robertson, who writes the, the book, uh, Christ in the Covenant, says, in a context of threatening judgment, symbolized by the bloated rain clouds, God designates the overarching beauty of the rainbow to depict his grace in judgment. Having once destroyed the world, thereby depicting the immutability of his righteous decrees, the Lord God now couples the clouds with his rainbow 
to manifest his free and unmerited purpose of grace. You may be thinking, well, whew, we dodged that bullet. Like, so glad that there's no judgment to be feared. And yet, Jesus talks about this flood and this judgment as a, a movie trailer, so to speak, of what's to come. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 37, For as, there, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so he, he takes that judgment story, and he does this with some other judgment stories like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says that was just a little taste of what is to come, an ultimate judgment that will be visited upon sinners who have de-godded God. But you can still get on the ark. You can get on the ark. You can trust in the grace that's been given. Except it's not you're trusting in an ark, you're trusting in the cross. And the cross of Christ is the payment, the substitutionary death that Christ has paid so that mercy and grace can be offered to you. And we who are self-destructing when we are apart from God, when we have de-godded God, we have no hope. But by grace, he saves us from that, and he saves us to a new life where God is now at the center of our hearts, where he's transforming our intentions, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, and will one day absolutely thoroughly cure us of the spiritual sepsis that we all wrestle with because we live in a fallen world. And that is the glory and the good that is ahead of us because of the preserving grace of God. If you've never believed upon that, if you've never received that grace, I want to encourage you to do that today. To admit to God that you've de-godded Him, that you've sinned against Him, and that you need His, His salvation given to you through the cross to forgive you and to bring you back into relationship with Him. For those who've been on the ark, right, this is, this is a reminder of God's saving grace and his preserving grace. I mean, if you got up this morning, you're still a Christian. That's by grace. Sometimes we, we, we become Christians and we think, okay, that was by grace, but then I'm going to keep myself by my own effort. And uh, the Apostle Paul says to the Colossians, just as you received Christ by grace through faith, right? Now live in him by grace through faith. You're relying on grace 100%. This is, this is what faith is. You're relying on grace. It's not some sort of 50-50 agreement with God. And so as we, as we recognize that, the, the preserving grace, the grace that keeps us today, tomorrow, guess what? It's going to keep you through death. It's going to keep you into eternity. It's going to keep you throughout all eternity. Think about grace. That's a lot of grace. That's a lot of grace. And it is more than sufficient to save you, to keep saving you, and to deliver you saved to heaven itself. And so we have a lot to be 
grateful for. And we're reminded of this every time we come to this table, are we not? This is our sign. I mean, it, it's, the rainbow's still a sign for us, right? You see it in the clouds. You, you, can, you can think about God's preserving covenant with all of humanity, that, that the very reason that we can still breathe air and have a nice little apple-picking outing or drink some good coffee, all that is in part because of the covenant made with Noah. But he preserved human beings because he wanted to introduce them to this new covenant. And we remember it with this. This is one of our signs. This is, this is a sign, and then baptism, which we'll be doing this afternoon, this is this our other sign of this new covenant. And we remember Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, the night before his death, taking bread and breaking it and giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so this is, you know, this is our rainbow. And you see me break that and you see that, see that bread, you go, remember. I'm going to remember. That's, that's, that's the grace that saved me. That's the grace that's, that's preserving me today, tomorrow, next week, next month, all throughout eternity. In the same way, he took the cup. After he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. There's no doubt that Jesus died on the cross for sin. He says it in this institution of this supper. He said, I died for sin. I died to be a substitute so that sinners could be forgiven. And he says, As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Here's your rainbow. This is your rainbow. You remember the covenant, the saving grace, the transforming grace, the preserving grace that comes from the cross. And not only is it saving and preserving you, it's saving and preserving a family, right? The church. You don't take this at home by yourself. You take this with your community, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So not only are we saying, I have been rescued from sin, and its effects, but I'm also in a community with brothers and sisters that have also been. And guess what? We're all going to rule and reign in God's name in a new earth. And mosquitoes aren't going to carry E-E-E. We can walk up to the lion and just pat him on the head. Mm. I mean, that's just a little tip of the iceberg, right? And you hear that language in the prophets, I don't know why I'm going down this rabbit hole, but I'm doing it, right? Because it's 11.15, and I don't have to worry about my time. <clears throat> Where the prophets are saying, uh, the, the lion and the lamb, they're going to hang out. The child's going to play by the, the cobra hole. There's no danger. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. And so we get a little glimpse of that here in the church. As we, as we hear about the grace and mercy of God, you role play responding to that in faith by coming up here, putting out your hands, receiving that, and remembering the grace that saves you, the grace that preserves you. If you've not received that by faith this morning, again, I, I encourage you to do that. Or if you're like, I'm interested, I, I got some questions I want to talk, I'm going to encourage you after the service, come talk to me or come talk to one of the staff or perhaps someone here you know who's a Christian that can answer some of those questions. But don't, don't leave here today without at least starting that journey if you're beginning to investigate what it means 
But others of you, you're ready. You, you, you've heard enough. You've read enough. You've talked to friends enough. You, you're, you're ready this, this morning to receive by faith this grace that's been given to you at the cross. Others of us, if we've, we're, we're in Christ, um, we are celebrating, remembering God's preserving grace as we take the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for rescuing us from self-destruction. Lord, we would have taken ourselves straight to hell had you not intervened and given us unmerited favor. And so we are so grateful. And we receive this bread and this cup as a, as a remembrance of, of, of being given this truth of your grace and receiving that. But God, we didn't just need it that first day. We need it today. We need it tomorrow. We need it next week. We need it throughout all eternity. Thank you that you are such a generous God, such a gracious God who gives grace upon grace to sustain us. Lord, some of us, we, we, we have some situations in our lives right now where we just feel like you're not there or there's no grace to be had. Lord, may you work in our hearts to believe, to trust that you are indeed near and that you can be trusted and that you would bring about transformation and healing in the lives of each person here, Lord. We pray you, pray you would bless the bread and bless the cup. And this time together as a community of faith, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.